The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, July the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio today, Cormac McQuinn, Jennifer Bray and Pat Leahy. We've got sort of the gang all here, or more than half the gang's all here, Pat, because this is the sort of the wrap of the wrap of the week, because the political term has come to a close. You guys are all heading off to the Paul Corps mobile home in Corktown, where you'll be spending the next six weeks together. So we want to take a look back at the term. <laughs> Yes, it's wrap squared uh, this Friday. It's been uh, uh, it's been a busy and uh, and varied term. I don't think any of us thought when it started that it was going to be dominated by Ryan Tuberty and RTE. That was uh, uh, that was that was unexpected. Uh, it has sucked up all the uh, the political and media oxygen for the last what four. Five weeks. Has um, it sort of wiped all our memories now that nobody can remember anything that happened yes. before the Ryan Tuberty scandal? Some things happened. I'm, I feel sure that we will touch on one or two of them as uh, as today's symposium proceeds. Fueled as it is by chocolate fingers provided by and an end of term treat provided by our producer, Mr. Collin. Um, but uh, yes, there were things that happened before uh, before Ryan Tuberty. BRT. Before we launch into this, um, Jen is joking about the mobile home in Court Town. We don't. That is not what our listeners' subscription money actually goes on. But there is a recurring question that arises from the general public at this matter. That the Oireachtas goes into recess for how long? Until the mid, mid, uh, mid to late September, like the 17th or 18th, is it somewhere around there. So why are... <laughs> blocked it out of my head. Why are our taxpayer euros funding this eight Phew. weeks of summer holidays? How could you ask such a question? They're going to their constituencies. They're going to work very hard dealing with their constituents. Um, no, actually, I talked to a good few politicians and every single one I talked to plan on taking at least two weeks off and like love them or load them. Everybody deserves a break. Um, now... Some of them will take probably much longer than that, no doubt about it. But um, is there a lot it, of variation there? I mean, are they because obviously the mm, the rote answer is we're working away in our constituencies, or if you're in a government party or your minister or something, you say I've got all this planning to do. But are there some who'll just kick back for the next eight yeah. weeks? Oh my god, absolutely! Like let's call a spade a spade. There are some who'll just be like I'm working very hard, and they're just not. But I think actually this um, summer recess is a little bit different because we're heading into kind of this electoral cycle now. People have that in the front of their minds, and I think for that reason you'll actually maybe see politicians be a little bit more visible throughout this summer than they would have been last summer. And we like to give a glimpse behind the scenes here at the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast, Cormac. So what's it like being a correspondent in the dark days uh, of August into September, scrabbling for stories? You know, where, where no stories are to be found. You, 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 you prepare for it, or you try to prepare by, by sending out desperate fishing expedition, freedom of information requests, kind of late June, early July. Um, you You look for what the big story of the summer will be. I, unfortunately, I, f- I fear we've had that already with the, the Ryan Tuberty thing, but previous summers have, have, have thrown up Golfgate and and uh, the, the controversy over Catherine Zabone being appointed to a, a special job at the United Nations and then abandoning that. There's been things like that. It's a great like time that. for a scandal. Is if you get a, a little scandal, it can become yeah, a big yeah, scandal that, at this time that, of year. That, that, was, that was maybe 2020, 2021. Last year was a bit different. Last year we had... 
fevered uh, speculation about what would be in the budget in terms of cost of living measures because people were beginning to get hit in their pockets by the, the rising energy prices and all of that. So I'm, I'm not sure there's quite the same intensity in terms of that kind of issue this year, but, but we'll certainly see that ramp up as the, as the summer gets on. Um, personally, I'm kind of looking forward to, in the very end of August, uh, the, the findings of the Electoral Commission and uh, the boundary reviews for constituencies, because that will set the cat among the pigeons in terms of the, the politicians, who's going to be running in the elections, who's going to be worried that they'll lose their seat if the, the, the map has been withdrawn. And it's, it comes at a, it's a nice time. So I, the, I, the end of August, <coughs> start of September, which September is, is the, the kind of the, the, the danger zone of the, the silly season in that you're just before they come back. But but, you know, there's still a few weeks to go. So that's, that lands nicely, I think. This in year. relation to the, the constituency review, I, I can promise now, because I've already been talking to a couple of individuals, that we'll get together the gang from the last election who did the constituency breakdowns and we'll have a look at what it might mean and the awfully uh, Tipperary, all all the rest of them. We'll go through them one by one. You I look promise. so excited, oh Hugh. Oh my God, I love that stuff. <laughs> I do love that stuff. But we are going to look at a couple of big picture points that, that sort of ran through the the themes of the of of the term just gone, Pat. One is the relative strength in their political positions of the two two of the three leaders of the government, I suppose, Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin. Um, we had this uh, unprecedented one goes in and one goes out again back just before Christmas. Uh, how are they doing now in relation to each other? I think it's probably fair to say that uh, Micheál Martin would be happier with the last six months than Leo Varadkar will be. It was um, it was the conventional wisdom amongst uh, Polkars, or maybe that's my way of saying uh, it was it was it was my analysis that Micheál Martin was going to find the switch difficult, and that his party would become ever more restive once the status uh, of the Taoiseach's office passed from him to Leo Varadkar. And there was certainly a corresponding hope in Fine Gael that, uh, that, you know, given the platform of the Taoiseach's office becoming the government's dominant figure and chief spokesman, that Leo Varadkar would lead a resuscitation in Fine Gael's fortunes. But that's not what has happened. If you look, you go by the metric of, of, of the poll numbers, Fine Gael has slipped in, uh, in recent polls and Fianna Fáil has done okay. You're looking at a kind of a medium-term trend of Fianna Fáil in the early 20s, Fianna Gael late teens, maybe uh, maybe touching 20. And that is very much not where Fianna Gael wants to be. And there is a bit of low-level muttering. I don't know what the other guys think, but I pick up persistent low-level muttering in Fianna Gael about what's happening. Why hasn't it taken off for us are we going to be able to revive our fortunes before the next uh, the next election? And that I think endures now into uh, in, into the summer. Uh, it's hard to put your finger on a specific single reason uh, for this. The government has, you know, is you know there was a spat over tax cuts in uh, in in May with Fine Gael junior ministers you know, advertising their desire for substantial tax cuts in the budget that was greeted with some discomfort and indeed anger in certain quarters in Fine Gael. But other than that, it hasn't been a term of coalition partners sniping uh, at, at one another consistently. But for whatever reason, it... it well, what this is, part what, of the government I mean, is I'm just intrigued. not really working what as well politically for what Fine Gael. Is, what is the reason? 
is it about Leo Varadkar's performance or is it about something broader about the party? Exhaustion of the party, maybe. I think there's, I think that there's always a number of factors. So, you know, let's try and enumerate them. One is I don't think that Leo Varadkar has settled quite as comfortably into the office of Taoiseach as he, uh, as, as, as he did previously. Secondly, Michal Martin has negotiated the step down in status and profile quite well. He is, I think Jen was remarking recently, he is almost as ubiquitous now as Tonishta as he was when he was Taoiseach. And he has carried the general perception both around Leinster House and also as reflected in the polls, the general perception that he did a good job as Taoiseach into uh, and that has cushioned him in the step down uh, into uh, into being into being tarnished. There is a deal, I think, of just uncertainty about what Fine Gael's pitch and positioning is, and that we saw that I think during uh, that controversy over the uh, over the tax cuts, because as we came on to do the summer economic statement, which was although came about in the midst of the Tuberty RTE uh, controversy, was still one of the most important things, and maybe we didn't pay as much attention as we should have, but it was still one of the important events of the past political term. And that demonstrated that those tax cuts that Fine Gael was so excited by n- were not going to be of the scale that they had hoped in uh, in the forthcoming budget. Tax cuts, which budget. the polls showed, the electorate was not particularly excited exactly. by either. True, but Fine Gael isn't aiming for 51% of the electorate. Its aim, as Leo Varadkar said, is maybe 25%. If they can get up to 25% uh, of the vote, then they can have a successful uh, election next time. But they're a good bit off what that now. What do you think, Jen? How much of this is about Fine Gael's identity? How much of it is about the figure of Leo Varadkar? I think they're both inextricably linked. Um, I think the public are very smart and I think they know when there's electioneering going on. And I think that's what happened with the budget issue that that Pat referenced. Um, Like Fine Gael are in this weird position now, if you think about it, right? They, on one hand, as as a party, you know, politically can boast about a couple of things. You know, we've got full employment, basically, um, a, a thriving economy. Um, Brexit was it's kind of more or less sorted out. Well, you know, for want of a better phrase, but we have the Windsor framework. Um, the pandemic has been managed. We have all these, you know, soaring surpluses now and into the future. I mean, if you look at that on paper, that's a lot to be able to stand over. And yet, and yet, the party hit its lowest rating in an Irish Times poll in mid-June, I think it was, at 18%. And of course, you're going to ask the question, why? Um, and if you look at Leo Varadkar's ratings, like they have been slumping. And I think the two are, are very much linked. I think the party can very much stand over certain things. And like, let's be fair, those things are real. We can see them all around us. But politically, even if you look at Leo Varadkar, he's been not abandoned, but at least five of his former lieutenants, his right-hand men, have left the stage. That belies a question in itself. Um, and I think actually what happened was during the time of those tax cuts when we had the three uh, junior ministers going out um, in the Irish Independent talking about a grant for those on incomes of 52k, etc. Fine Gael basically drew a budget battle line and said, this is what we stand for. We're putting our pitch out there before anybody else. This is what matters. We're going for Middle Ireland and that's it. And we're, we're doubling down on that. And then what you, if you see what Fianna Fáil did, and I talked to people in government at the time in Fianna Fáil, their first reaction was to come out and say, well, here's what we stand for and F you, basically. But actually what they decided to do was sit it out and wait 
and that worked wonders because if you look at the polls afterwards and the way people reacted, it did not go down well. And secondly then, when I was in Jersey a couple of weeks ago, which was a lovely trip, by the way, thanks Pat, um, and I was in Jersey a couple well, of weeks ago. Well, I had to get someone to be my bag man. Well, I was over there sipping rosé, just kidding, kind of. But um, when I was over there, I did an interview with Leo Varadkar. We should point out it was for a meeting <laughs> of the British-Irish Council. It was. <laughs> wasn't just a holiday. Um, but I did an interview with Leo Varadkar over there and I thought there was a really striking change of tone about that tax proposal. So previously he doubled down. He said he knew about that op-ed from the junior ministers, blah, blah, blah. Over there he said, do you know what? I think that the public don't want to see this. I don't think we should be in the space of attacking each other. And I kind of sat there and thought, well, that's new. That's a change. And I think he cottoned on and realised this is not working, this is not going down well with the public. So the overall impression of that is is, is, a, is an impression of, of uncertainty, Cormac. But if you turn to the other side of this coin, which is the position of Fianna Fáil, Stephen Collins in this morning's Irish Times looks at the options, the various options that may be open to Micheál Martin over the over the next 12 months or so, some of which might be quite attractive. The uh, Under the terms of the agreement for government, the, the, commi- the commissioner's job, which will be up next year, uh, is in Fianna Fáil's gift. So that's an option. There might be a senior portfolio. There, there might even be, I think, president of the council. There is a little talk of that, although Stephen pours a little bit of cold cold water on that. Lots of options. Or he could decide to lead Fianna Fáil into the election. I noticed Stephen suggesting that this would be the noble, self-sacrificing thing to do for the best betterment of the country. And Stephen uh, finishes off by saying that Michal Martin is that kind of a man. That it would be better for him to say stay in, to, as leader of Fianna Fáil. I mean, it's, it's what he said he would do many times. Now, he has to, he has to say that, obviously, but it, it might certainly be for the betterment of Fianna Fáil if, if he did stay on as, as the leader because he's he's wildly more popular than the, the party itself. Uh, he's consistently polling as one of the most popular political leaders in Ireland. And it's, it's really extraordinary when you, when you think about the state of that party when he took over as leader in 2011. It was toxic. It completely toxic. He revived it to the point where they more than doubled the seats then in 2016, had a bad election in 2020. But now he's the he's the politician in Ireland that to a certain extent has, has the world at his feet. He potentially has the choice of these top European jobs um, from next year or or he can give it one more throw of the dice uh, and and pitch for something that would be really extraordinary and a return to, to government next time around uh, could could well happen if if the the current uh, coalition parties win enough support to to save off the the threat from Sinn Fein. Uh, so it's it's just it's to, to contrast his his position with that of, of Leo Varadkar who came in with such promise in 2017, mostly or in a large part due to a perception that he would increase uh, Fine Gael's hall of election of doll seats the next time around. I think it was about 13 extra seats they thought he'd get a, with him over Simon Coveney. That didn't happen. He did well in the European elections in 2019, all right in the, the local elections. But ever since then, it's been a, a downward trajectory. No, no wins in the 2019 by-elections. Uh, awful 2020 election. He faces his big test, his biggest test as leader next year with the, with the local and European elections. If he, if he does badly there, it's it's not it's not looking great for him. So it's just it's it is a remarkable contrast between the, the two leaders. You know, Martin really only has to do as well as as he's done already, and or maybe add a few seats to to, to be perceived as a success. Maybe we turn and look at the opposition. Um, sometimes when, as we have done, Pat, on this podcast, sometimes we refer to the fact that there are now three medium-sized parties as opposed to two large parties. And uh, some listeners uh, mail in 
very promptly to say there aren't three medium-sized parties. There's one large party and two medium-sized parties and then a bunch of, of little ones. And it is undoubtedly true that Sinn Féin is miles ahead uh, of the um, of, of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, a good 14 or 15 percentage points ahead. Mm. But it does seem to have kind of flattened a bit in the polls. The, the, the extraordinary increases that it had seen in the preceding two years seem to have seem to have slowed down. I, I can see a look of scepticism on your face about the three medium-sized parties. Thing well, I suppose, look, it depends on, you know, what is your, you know, what is your criteria for judging the size of parties? Is it, you know, an opinion poll leader? Is it seats in the doll, local authority seats or whatever? So I think it's probably fair to call them three medium-sized parties with Sinn Féin bigger than the other two medium-sized parties at the moment. One of the... And we say it every time we dissect the entrails of a poll in here, but, you know, one of the important things is always not to look at one poll in isolation, but to look at the medium-term trends uh, in the polling. And one of the important, the, the, the most striking trend in the polls for the first two years of, uh, of this government was the rise of Sinn Féin. The, you know, the... the, the, the decline our um, at least status of treading water of the uh, of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and the rise and rise uh, of Sinn Féin to the extent that they went up and were trending in the mid-30s uh, at, at one stage. According to our most recent poll and a couple of others that have recently been published, that has come back uh, a little bit. So, the pla- so Sinn Féin has plateaued or it has declined uh, a little. And uh, its lead is now... You know, whereas at one stage during that period of rapid growth, rapid and sustained growth for Sinn Féin, it looked as if by the time of the next election, Sinn Féin alone could be uh, twice as big as, uh, uh, as either Fianna Fáil uh, or Fianna Gael and could be greater than the sum of their parts. That Which would be looks, an important number, that, I think. Yeah, I think would, that would course. be a, yeah, a historic yeah, yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah. It, would, it would probably mean that no government was possible without Sinn Féin. Whereas the way the polls are looking now, and we have maybe, you know, 15, 18, maybe 20 months to go before a general election. Uh, and that, so that, of course, could change. But what does it look like at the moment? What's the medium-term trend? It's much more like Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, late teens, early 20s, Sinn Féin, low 30s. That's not... That's a lead of a different calibre to to one which uh, has them as twice as big as any of their rivals. And I think it is an important trend. So if the important trend for the first two, two and a half years of this government was Sinn Féin soaring ahead, I think in the last six months, the important trend has been that fallback a little for Sinn Féin. So what then, in as much as we can tell such a thing, Jen, is has Sinn Féin's strategy been over the last parliamentary term and is it likely to be into the future? Is it likely to be consolidation at that low 30s point which Pat describes there? Or are they seeking to build on some of the success which they've undoubtedly had over the last three years or so with reaching parts of the electorate that they'd never reached before? Is it a kind of what we have we hold in the run-up to the election or... Are they looking just to kind of to, to consolidate where they are right now? Well, I actually think that there's a lot of people within Sinn Féin and within government and elsewhere who genuinely would have expected Sinn Féin to be doing a lot better in the polls at this stage. And I think there is an anxiety within Sinn Féin that the next election is theirs to lose, um, that there's been so much hype around them being the government in waiting 
that actually when it comes down to it, they won't have the numbers and we could end up with the exact situation we're in now. And around halfway through this doll term, Mary Lou MacDonald hit her five-year mark as leader of Sinn Féin. And I think it was interesting to look back at kind of the five years that she's had. You know, not all of it has been great news. You know, the party lost three TDs. I mean, in in opposition, that's a lot. At least a dozen councillors since she took over. A lot of the reasons given are kind of alarming. You know, talks about um, uh, undemocratic processes and councils and and, um, handling of bullying complaints. All of that still exists within Sinn Féin as a problem. Their strategy since when, before the last election, has been to take the issues the government failed on, lambast them for it, but come up with solutions because that's what they were criticised for in the previous local elections uh, for not doing. Um, And they've done that to a certain degree. However, this has been a really interesting term for for Sinn Féin because there's been many times where I saw almost an open goal against the government and they didn't take it. And some of those issues were around planning controversies, junior ministers that had to resign. I don't know the exact reasons why Sinn Féin didn't go hell for leather, but they didn't always. I wonder, is there a deliberate tactic there or is there just something they're a bit worried might come well, out? What, what, what would that tactic be? I mean, why perhaps not, not the opposition? Be, why not go hell for leather at the government? Not to be so aggressive, perhaps. I mean, you know, because there does come a point where people tune into the news and they hear someone constantly roaring across the floor of the doll saying the same thing they said last week and the week before and the week before and people kind of tune out. And I wonder, did they take a decision to step it back a little bit? And I'll be really interested to see kind of what what tack they take when we go into the next term because obviously like I said we're heading into an electoral cycle but I know that there is an anxiety as well about the local elections this is a problem all parties have finding candidates now apparently is really difficult especially female candidates because all these female candidates are hearing about how horrendous it is and the abuse you get and sure the year started with Anne Rabbit having a you know cow dung flung at her so people are hearing about this and the people, quotas are going up at the same time the quotas they ha- they're going up and there's a link to state funding like they have to meet these quotas so i know there's anxiety within Sinn Féin 40% of candidates which is huge so i there's there's a lot of things coming down the tracks for Sinn Féin and i think that i think they're looking at the polls and maybe thinking we should be higher than this why aren't we what do you think's going on Cormac? it's something that Sinn Féin faces is that they they have their core support their their percentage of core support which at the moment is kind of low 30s you know it's Finnegale are similar. They have they have their percentage of core support. It hasn't changed. the The undecideds are all are all look supporting independents and and smaller parties at the moment. Now, as we approach an election, it it might might be the case that some of them will will shift towards Sinn Fein or the or the government parties. But but I I think everyone's have has what they hold at the moment. Although but a lot aren't of what you describe as Sinn Fein's core support has been relatively recently acquired. You know? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they, I suppose they, they've held on to that recently acquired core support, if you will. Um, I mean, I, I, in terms of holding back from the government, uh, in terms of criticising the government, things like that, it, I wonder if it's part of uh, a, a more broad strategy of, of trying to show that they're kind of preparing for government themselves. They'd be, they're trying to be the adults in the room. They're trying they're to pick, pick and choose, yeah. pick and choose yeah. which, which issues they're going to they're cause a ruckus on. Respectabilise. Mm. There's <laughs> another thing as well, actually. Um, the party's position on um, asylum and migration and immigration, um, they have very much, since the start of the year, 
condemned kind of violence, condemned blockades that we've seen. Um, and they've they've taken that tack. And I actually think they have suffered for that electorally. I think there's a huge, not a huge part, actually, I'll take that back. I think there is a cohort within Sinn Féin that would have drifted towards kind of that nationalist element. And I do believe that that could be an element in them not maybe losing a little bit of support. That's a, a very interesting point. And in fact, hold that thought because that's a subject which... Um, figured quite largely over the last over the last few months, and we want to uh, go into it in a little bit more depth after we take this break. Uh, that mobile home in Cork Town needs to be paid for. It can only be it can only be uh, done so with your uh, with your tank has to be emptied, <laughs> your euros, all of that. Plenty to be doing. New beach balls, I hear. Wine um, fridge replenished. Yes, most importantly, more rosé, more rosé for Jen, Thank you. and that can, all of that can only happen with your generous support by being a subscriber to IrishTimes.com. Just go to IrishTimes.com/slash/subscribe. And you're very welcome back. Jen was saying just before the break there about Sinn Féin's approach to the the incredibly thorny issue in the middle of the winter, Pat, around the provision of accommodation for uh, displaced people, asylum seekers. And it, it got really spiky in various places around the country, both in urban and rural areas. It seems to have calmed down. Has the government got a handle on it or is this just a temporary respite? I think that uh, it has calmed down uh, a bit, partly that's because government has sourced, uh, has managed to source accommodation. So there was a period in which um, asylum seekers, uh, male asylum seekers, families continued to be uh, accommodated. And male asylum seekers uh, who arrived were were told the state had nowhere to put them um, uh, for a period of time. So that's what gave you those all those tents down on Man Street outside the uh, the headquarters of the department that deals with that. And, uh, and you know, one of the, the standout moments, I suppose, in the, the last political term was the demonstrations down there which led to the burning of some of those tents uh, on, uh, on a nearby laneway, which is, um, you know, really not the sort of thing that we would associate with happening in... in in Ireland, if you saw it in, you know, France or somewhere where you know violent street protests are more common about asylum seekers being burned out, you would say one thing. But um, I think it was certainly a departure for Ireland. The difficulty for the for the government is that it has no control amongst uh, uh, over the or very little control. It maybe has some influence, but but very little control over the numbers of people arriving here to seek asylum. And it has uh, it has attempted to um, do a couple of things with mixed success. One is to process new claims more quickly, which it, I understand, is doing. Now, most claims processed within three months, but after that, there is a, an appeals process that can go on for years. Uh, the other thing they've uh, sought to do is to dissuade people from coming here. One of the ways they've done that is by saying, we can't put you up, you're going to be sleeping on the streets. And, sure, is it uh, part of government strategy to have photographs of asylum seekers sleeping on the streets? As cynics might say so. I think if you talk to people uh, in government about it on deep, deep background, they're saying, it was, of course, it's regrettable having people sleeping uh, on the streets. But if we cannot deal with the numbers that are coming, then maybe it's not a bad message to send out. Uh, to people, many of whom, if the truth be told, are economic migrants. That is not to diminish their um, uh, it's not to diminish their motivations for uh, for being here, but it's I think simply the uh, the fact of the uh, of the matter certainly is believed in government amongst the people who who many of the people who process their uh, their applications. And the other thing the government has tried to do, which is done with 
some success is find places to uh, to put uh, people who are uh, arriving here seeking asylum. And that has not been without difficulties as we have seen in the last term and also far beyond that. We've seen controversies in Clare, ongoing controversy in East Wall, in Dublin and uh, in a couple of other places where local people feel that, hold on a second, you know, why aren't we asked if we want to have these people living uh, in our community? And that's a real flashpoint. And there is no easy answer to it. Uh, Tisha Lieveracker said on a couple of occasions, hold on a second, you can't choose who gets to live in your community. Uh, and, uh, and he's right. At the same time, you can see the point of communities that say, hold on, we live in you know, a small community with very limited resources and all of a sudden you know, you're putting in hundreds of single men in here. So, Cormac, we're measuring out our life in parliamentary terms here, but this is more the politics of the street, or at least it is in Ireland for the moment. In other European countries, it is the, the, the stuff of regular politics, electoral politics. That's not yet the case here. As Jen said, Sinn Féin didn't go for this in any way whatsoever. Do you think that's going to continue? Um, is it sustainable, I wonder, into the future? I mean, I, I don't know what proportion of the politics population would hold the kind of far-right views, the anti-immigrant views that there are, but there, I, I think there probably is a concern that they will be they could become a, a electoral force in the future um, in a way that they're not at the moment What's one thing that's kind of difficult to that is who would they vote for at present, you know, as, as Jen mentioned, Sinn Féin aren't really providing a a, a, an outlet for for those kinds of feelings. Well, I can't, I can't of think very of very small fringe parties. Yes, absolutely. But they have zero elected representatives either at local or be interesting or to see what happens level. in the locals next yeah. year to mm. see if anybody in these areas that are um, that are you know have experienced uh, these sort of protests if they are going to if there will be candidates who stand on uh, an anti-immigrant. Uh, platform would Surely be they will, because they places. have stood before, so they're clearly going to I'm stand again, and they, they will perceive that yeah, they have a greater so opportunity. Yeah, this time. I think I, uh, I think that would be interesting. I mean, traditionally, what has happened in in Ireland, and it is possible to, to, of course, you know, to have a view that the, you know, the number of immigrants that a country can absorb is finite. That is, I mean, that's the view that that everybody has, I suppose. It's simply yes, a matter can, that, that of shade, where the that limits That can shade are. into Ireland is full as a slope. Yes, it, yes, it can. And it'd be preposterous and to also the, Ireland uh, is full. And also can shade into we don't like the kinds of people who are coming. I mean, they, the one the one mantra of, of many of the protesters is unvetted military-age men. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of irrelevant. Are you an unvetted military-age man, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it, I don't know. I might be pushing it on the age front, but uh, but it's you know it, it's in Crow Park on Sunday. Teams of unvetted military age men will be hurling the bejesus out of one another. You know. Yeah, but it, it's you know that's that's it. But you know while while you can you can argue that that there has to, and everyone perceives that there is a limit to how much the country can take. I, d- I don't think we can pick and choose who we're going to take. Well, we legally um, can't. No, um, absolutely not. But. This is intimately tied in with the other huge issue, which is probably the make or break issue for uh, politics in this country, which is housing, Jen. I mean, that's one of the reasons why this is such a problem is because we're in the midst of an accommodation crisis for, for the whole country and added to that the, the, the influx of, of Ukrainian refugees as well. But I look at the news day in, day out and Darrow O'Brien and announcements here and announcements there and I look at critiques and analysis of what's going on and if it seems to me that, you know, that 
the core objective of this government when it was formed in 2020 was to get a grip or be seen to have got a grip to some extent on the housing crisis by the time it returned to the electorate. Doesn't look like that's going to happen, does it? No, and the reason why is because um, demand far outstrips supply and that will continue to always be the case until some... I don't know what, I don't even know what the, the solution is, apart from a completely different approach, quite frankly. Um, to be fair, like I think if you look at the the figures, you know, the government said last year it met its housing targets and on paper it did. Um, I think if you drill down into a little bit, it's a little bit more problematic in terms of the balance between how many of those properties were, um, you know, new builds, um, you know, first-time properties and, and how many of them were, were acquisitions, etc. And if the state is acquiring mm. private homes um, for to, to meet social housing demand, that's having an impact on the private homes market. You know, all these things are connected. Yeah, and actually know? if you look at, Pat has a story today about the Land Development Agency looking to acquire private land in order to build, to build um, affordable housing. And I think in that piece they were saying it's because they, they feel they have to do that now. Um, and that's where we're at. And then there were figures out during this week. I'm totally open to correction because I only looked at them once, but I think they showed that in the first six months of this year, there were 15,000 completion notices. Um, so if, if you took that for the rest of the year, provided I haven't given you a completely wrong statistic, um, you know, they're on track to meet on paper their target this year. But on paper, we know that the government's housing targets are so far out of date. It's actually a joke. In January of this year, one of the first stories I remember we had uh, in the politics section of the year was about how the housing plan was going to be revised to take account for all kinds of different things, including future climate migrants, including um, the increased inflow of, of you know migration and, and, and various other things. That hasn't happened. I mean, there was talk that there was a revision of the housing plan. Um, Leo Varadkar was asked about this recently and he kind of said, well, well, yeah, he didn't seem to give a straight answer on it. And I think the housing plan is out of date. Yes, they can say we met some targets on paper. But have they succeeded? No. Are the, are the targets the targets because they can maybe be reached or nearly reached and not yeah. because they're what's required? Though. And how much credibility does well, that exactly. have with Actually, that's such a good point because they're the ones they can reach. Why would they set themselves further unattainable targets? Of course they don't want to revise the housing plan. Of course they don't. It's a moving target. People do this. Yeah, no, is, is it a moving target or is it just a Sisyphean task which, which can never be achieved, Pat, ultimately? From a political point of view, in terms of the political incentives and the objectives and the job which was given to Dara O'Brien to say Fianna Fáil have made progress on this and to be able to go to the electorate on that basis. I think, I think what they have to be able to do is, say we, is, is, is demonstrate that we have made appreciable process. I'm not sure it's a Sisyphean task uh, as such, because that's something that can that can never be achieved. Whereas we know that in, in political is, terms, it's a, it's a, it's a task in that you're that you're working in electoral cycles. Yeah, well, for the duration of this together. government, but mm-hmm. we know that a, a, a position is imaginable where we think we've too many houses in the country, and we know this because we reached it about ten years ago. And um, uh, so, I, I think I think the polit- realistically speaking, the political task for the government is to show that it has made some appreciable progress. If it can. If, if there are, you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands of people who have got new homes by the time of the next election that didn't have them at the last election, then that is something that the government can 
uh, can can point to. Mm. The very best it can hope for is to say, look, we know we haven't solved this problem, but it was a lot worse than we thought we have done as well as anybody could humanly do. And I think that that prospect is very much in the balance right now. And I think what you see, say, with the Land Development Agency, etc., that move that we reported on today is that people are beginning to realise, Jesus, the next election is just around the corner and we need to get moving on things. It might have been better off if that re- realisation had come to them three years ago, but... Um, yeah, but why, politically why, speaking, I suppose better. Why, why didn't it? Like, they did seem to understand that when Michal Martin came in, and specifically, I think probably from criticism within his own party, took on some of the most difficult um, roles in government, the chief one of which is housing, and gave it to Daryl O'Brien. You would have thought there would have been a sense of urgency. Is it not? Is that not extraordinary? I mean, I don't think it would be fair to say that there hasn't been a sense of urgency. Well, sufficient urgency. Maybe sufficient urgency. But actually, that ties been. into what the previous topic on asylum seekers and immigration. This is one of the. Um, arguments that sometimes people use to kind of stick to to, where, to be the government with is how come they took this emergency style um, approach to get modular builds and all that as they should have done and they didn't necessarily have that approach for housing Yeah, they have accommodated 70 or 80,000 Ukrainians. Which is absolutely right thing. Like nobody's arguing that's the wrong thing to do but the question is the approach and I think people have a valid point there. I think you you commented at the start about the difficulty of remembering anything to happen in this stall term prior to Ryan Tuberty and and RT. But when but are we actually, going to get onto that? But actually, the, we are not. <laughs> the biggest uh, the bit the biggest issue that arose, in my opinion, anyway, during that time, and it's the biggest political risk for the government was the ending of the the temporary ban on evictions. There was we they got a weeks of battering over that that decision, uh, albeit they they took it with the, the goal of not making things in the rental sector worse. Uh, but we, we I don't think we have yet to see the full implications of that play out. It, people were protected up until a couple of weeks ago. Um, we don't have the full scale of, of how many there people were. There was a sense that it would be an incremental thing sure, rather yeah. than a just a doomsday And And, scenario, and I think it, it is it is one of those easy to remember things at the next election that if, if you have people who connected to you who are evicted or who are still looking for a home, Oh, they're they're the government that ended the eviction ban. It's it's a real it's an easy attack line for the opposition, uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's one that may well come back to, to bite the coalition. Can I um can I give you a fact check on myself? It was fifteen thousand, but it was commencements, not completions. Just ah, you know, okay. it's very important do, do, that we remain accurate in this podcast. Duly noted. I mean, amidst all this angst and these huge difficulties, social difficulties over our heads, over Dolairn is a massive balloon full of cash. Vast amounts of money, more than the state has ever seen before. And that seems to me to be the other enormous factor in the political dispensation as we've seen it play out over the the last 12 months and now over the next 12 months, which is what's going to be done with it all, Pat? Well, some of it will be spent and some of it will be saved. Uh, so That's it. Next, next subject. This is, the, uh, this is, of course, the other big thing that has emerged in the last political term. It's been the ongoing robust health of uh, of the public finances. And uh, that great balloon of cash hanging over Leinster House that you describe, uh, Hugh, is, you know, it, 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 it's one of the when the history of this year comes to be written, it will be one of the outstanding things that will be noted that this government continued to have the enormous good fortune, influenced by decisions made by this and previous governments, uh, no doubt, to have this 
you know, river of cash flowing into it from uh, uh, from corporation tax. One of the most significant things to happen in the last number of weeks, I think, was in that uh, summer economic statement, where it became, which sets out the parameters for the uh, budget which would take place in October, where it became clear that the uh, that the budget would be more or less along the lines of, notwithstanding the the the, the, the giant balloon, uh, that the budget would be more or less along the lines uh, uh, of last year's one, which is to say that um, a lot of this money is going to be saved. Maybe twelve billion or so is going to be saved. There will be a very generous budget. Last budget, last year's budget was a big was a big um, uh, you know was a big giveaway package. Not just increasing spending by nearly seven percent last year in terms of recurring spending, but then also giving away €4 billion Euros in terms of one-off giveaways to deal with the cost of living. I think we will see something fairly similar this year. But what that means, I think, is that the kind of axis between uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath at the centre of government remains very much uh, in control of decisions over the, uh, over the public finances, despite the election uh, in the uh, in, in the medium term future, and that uh, they are keeping the brakes on the desires of their colleagues for uh, for increased spending, and that is quite an important development, I think. <laughs> Sorry, Hugh, when you said there was a balloon over Leinster House, I had like this image of a balloon with Ryan Tuberty's face on it, and like, will he get his <laughs> we job? Just, back? We just can't keep him out, can, of it, can we? No. Uh, but for politicians, a huge balloon full of cash over your head surely presents, you know, a challenge. Let's spend it on all the good things which things should be spent on. One of the things that's sort of telling is that Sinn Féin aren't quite saying that. They're 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 more or less going along with the kind of fiscal approach of the, of the yeah. government currently, aren't they? They're not saying that yet. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll wait to see kind of what stance they take and see what's in their pre-budget submissions. Um, and Cormac remarked earlier on, perhaps they're already in this. I think you used the phase respectability um, in, in this phase of kind of pre-preparation for government and not rocking the boat too much but there's that pol- there's that pressure on all politicians Sinn Féin they're going around to the multinationals yeah. telling them they're not going to you know mess up their lives and everything aren't they yeah they have me- meetings with Ireland Inc and all that kind of stuff you know there are those preparations on going behind the scenes and kind of face to face meetings but that pressure is on all politicians like I say leading into the budget and that will become acute on Leo Varadkar and the difference this time than last time is that he, you know, he is the Taoiseach this time so I do expect to see some surprises on budget day, um, regardless of kind of the the strength of the the combined unit of Pascal and and Michael. But there's also another element to it. I've been sitting on this piece of news for a couple of weeks. This is how sure I am that it's true that I haven't pitched it or written it yet. <laughs> but um, there is a push, and are you going to laugh at me now? But I, I've heard this from people in Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. There is a push for a spring election next year. I know it sounds bananas. Oh, I know it sounds crazy. But actually... <laughs> the February rain again. The February rain again, right, because I was walking through Leinster House one day and it was a minister who stopped me and said, did you hear, this is around four weeks ago, did you hear about this push about a spring election? I said, haha, go out of that. And they're like, no, seriously, like it's coming from within Fine Gael and it's emanating out through Fianna Fáil. I mean, and I was kind of How asking... How does that like, work? It's a strange but, digestive tract of the I know, but yeah. that's, that's the way the government works now. <laughs> There's your second headline. Mm. But um, it's, the logic basically was, and this, I'm getting somewhere with this, trust me. The logic was, because I was like, well, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense before the local elections. Like, why? You're not prepared, the boundary redraw, blah, blah, blah. And they were saying that there's this feeling in Fine Gael that if they throw the book at the budget and come out with all these goodies, you know, to hell with the Fiscal Advisory Council and what everybody and future generations say, 
that those effects of it will start filtering through. Because you know the way they delay a lot of them till January, February, sure. March. That by the time they come around to election time, number one, they'll have all these goodies and say, check your pockets. Um, and number two, they'll be able to take the heat off perhaps a massacre at local level. Now, I don't think that there's going to be a spring election. But people are talking about it. I'm not making this it would, up. Uh, it would deny Sinn Féin the chance to road test all their, their candidates exactly. and the locals, you know, that's, yeah. that's one benefit. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer has really upped the stakes here, Cormac. What, what, what do you think of that? I don't want the spring election again. It's like, it is yeah. miserable you have to separate chasing, your personal chasing Leo Varadkar and, and, and Mary Millett MacDonald well, around the rain. Are in we talking February. about a February election yeah. or are we talking about a spring election? March. Hmm. Now, look, I'm all for it. I am like... If I could have an election tomorrow... The enthusiasm of youth. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, it's that rosé. I had rosé for breakfast. No, um, no, I, I'm all for it. I'd say go, you know, so, the sooner we've an election, the better, because I actually just, it's my favourite part of the job. They're fun to cover in fairness. They're brilliant. I just love it. Like, you, you can't be a Polcor and not enjoy elections. If that's the case, you should probably leave the job. Like, but um, I think those uh, who fondly remember the... Uh, Inside Politics Election Podcast election uh, in 2020. Go to Election Daily. You know, we could do that all next year because it's not just us. The Brits are going to have an election. The Americans I mean, are going to have an election. True. Everybody's Although I think we elections. should make some effort to separate our personal preferences from what we think is going to happen. <laughs> is such a thing possible? <laughs> um, look, there's always, there's always hot talk at this stage in the cycle about an early election. But the reality is it rarely, if ever, happens. Yeah. Oh look! Don't I they agree. want they want the housing figures to improve, and they, they certainly won't by by next by next spring. Yeah, know. and there's a reason why I haven't written this story yet. And also, it would require because <laughs> it might not be I true. Think you've kind of let the cat out of the bag now, Jen. <laughs> it it would require, wouldn't it? it? Um, this is the place for this. I mean, I suppose they could ignore the Greens and just go for it, but it would require consensus between would, yeah. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Well, yes and no. It's the Taoiseach's prerogative to seek a dissolution of the doll, and he can do that if he wants. But if he wants to present himself and his party as part of a government that works and a part of a government that has been cohesive and has knuckled down and got to grips with the country's problems, then he needs the assent of the other two parties about when he uh, when he calls the election. Now, maybe he wants to run on a very different platform, but I don't see the political logic of running on a different platform. We do have to wrap this up. We've gone much longer than we normally do on these Friday wraps, but there was a lot to talk about because we were talking about the whole term. Uh, normally we ask about articles that people have read this week, but we want to kind of spread the spread the load a little bit this this time. You're, you're a politician of the term, Pat. Uh, so I have, given that they are almost um, indistinguishable in terms of their policy preferences, I have picked the, uh, the, 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 the twin politician, uh, of uh, of the term is uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath. I've done that because I think they have beaten back the demands for greater spending because of that uh, the 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 Linehan balloon above Leinster House, and uh, I think they have asserted their control at the centre of government, and I think that's quite significant. Jen. I actually had no idea you were going to ask that and now I'm totally thrown. Um, but if I was go off the top of my head, oh no, I'm going to make a wrong decision here. But um, I would say either, I pick two, I'll pick either David Cullinan because I think he's done tremendous work on the health committee and he's had a really effective way of kind of getting under their skin on one of their biggest um, failures, I suppose, which is in relation to health. You know, like look how he's performed in relation to the National Children's Hospital. He's been there every single day during recess so far. Um, and he's got sources behind the scenes, so he's getting to grips with it. And, you know, I'll just leave it with him. Okay. I'm, I'm going to say, I mean, it might be a, an easy 
option in one sense because there's, it's readily measurable. Uh, but uh, Holly Carnes, who's become the, the leader of the Social Democrats in March, uh, taking over from Catherine Murphy and Roisin Shortall, uh, she came in, you know... I think I think she's hooked on a on a good issue, uh, talking about the the generation of people that can't get on the housing ladder. And um, we've seen social democrats increase their support in opinion polls lately to as high as six percent in one. I think, and I don't think that's a, a coincidence. And um, it, it, that kind of message, you know, trying to tap into that generation that that are frustrated with with their lives and the, the kind of the late 20s into their 30s it, it's it's probably a good strategy and it, it might peel off some of, some of that that crowd that went towards Sinn Féin as well who mightn't be quite comfortable voting for Sinn Féin but, but like the idea of Social Democrats she's also a rural politician for, for a party like that it, it probably increase her chance of getting re-elected next time around uh, and she hasn't had any major missteps unless, unless I'm forgetting something in the in the few months she has been leader so yeah she, she's my pick I think it will be interesting to watch how she, how she gets on in the, in the period ahead Thank you. Do I have to pick one as well, do I? Okay. I'm going to pick Matty McGrath for the quote, which will be remembered from the parliamentary proceedings of the last term. When he quizzed the uh, the uh, the acting deputy director general of RTE, Adrian Lynch, about where was his loyalty. Now, you being from Tipperary, Pat, would have known exactly what he was saying from the start, but Mr. Lynch seemed nonplussed. Yeah, well, that's that, that's what happens when you send posh boys from South Dublin in to deal with representatives of the plain people of Ireland in the doll. That's why I stay down here in the in the in the podcast <laughs> studio and don't go near the place. We will leave it there for now for this term. Thank you very much, as always, to Pat, to Cormac, and to Jen. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. That's it for the wraps. They won't be back till after the summer, but we'll be doing lots of other interesting things in our midweek podcast. So look forward to seeing you then.